My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. And we're back. Welcome to the Prison Post. My name is Richard Morellis. This is my co-host, the always effervescent Jason Bryant. Effervescent. Hello, everyone. I like that word. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Always a smile. Yes, Let sir. us see you smile. Yeah, most le- most definitely. And uh, we have our guest with us, as as promised. Uh, we're so grateful that uh, Justin Chung is joining us, and it's good to see you, Justin. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long while. <laughs> yeah, well, you uh, last time I see you, you were wearing a similar white T-shirt, but you didn't have that background. Yeah, and I was balling you up. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, we're, going to, we're going to basketball already. Straight to sports. All right, all right. We can tell that story. Is it true? Uh, most definitely. Is it oh, true? Yeah. yeah, most definitely. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, uh, I'm 43. There's my there's my victim story. I'm 43. <laughs> Justin's uh, 31 today. Happy birthday! Oh, happy birthday to you! Thank you, thank you, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. So by the time I met him. How many years ago, Justin? Maybe five, six, seven years ago, seven years ago? About, yeah, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah, he was yeah. still in his early 20s. And when I was in my yeah. early 20s, I had the nickname Mad Handles. I had some, some dribbles on mine. And uh, <laughs> by the time he met me, I was in the late 30s and had yeah. no dribbles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we just talking about some though. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So uh, here was that. So I, you know, I still thought I had a little game. This youngster came on the court and was balling me up. So I went into bully mode and tried to yeah. <laughs> try to use my two hundred ten pounds. Oh, yeah, it didn't work. I think you got fouled out though. We're playing the league. <laughs> Justin, aren't you like a? You're like almost a whole foot taller than Rich, aren't you? Oh yeah, I try to out rebound him. He just keeps pushing me and stuff. So yeah, he's he's got the he's got the hedgehog thing going. He I remember he has that green down. jersey on in the five yeah. eight league. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. The old green jersey. Played for the Clippers and a few other teams. And that's when the Clippers were not good, by the way. Right. That's right. Oh, man. It's good to see you, Justin. Likewise. Good to see you both. We also saw him on the softball field, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. That's Sharknado right there for a little yeah, that's bit. A different story. Represent. <laughs> Brother. And we know we know you could have always came over to Soldiers for Christ, but. Yeah, yeah. Know, could have, you could have you could have you could have had the taste of championship. That's right. what you want that, to say. Yeah, I, I can't I can't talk about that one though. You guys you guys <laughs> on the the field with that, but I appreciate that. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. We always try to stay diverse, so you know we there was always room for you, but yeah, yeah. NATO was your team. <laughs> I just want some playing time. That's all. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I barely got playing time, so no. <laughs> um, yeah. What are you gonna do today for your birthday? Uh, today, uh, I'm going to go work out, uh, eat with some friends. I met some good friends at church since I've been out. Um, just awesome. eat good. Eat some boiling crab to go and eat till we just pass out. Yeah. Just Let me ask this. I, I want to ask him a question. Because, you know, my, my son's birthday is coming up on the 11th of January. And it's so close to Christmas. One of my fears, and it's already happening. Only his second birthday, his second Christmas, and it's already happening that people are like, "Here's your Christmas present and your birthday present." 
Oh yeah, you get to, yeah. You get that too <laughs> every time. Oh, oh, even <laughs> even yesterday at church, they're like, "Here's your present, your birthday and your Christmas." I was like, "Oh, thank you." <laughs> yeah. Got to be grateful though. You could definitely be grateful for the biggest Christmas present, which is uh, your freedom. How many, how long have you been free now? I've been free six months. Mm. That's great. Yeah, Justin, um, I'll share a little bit with our guests, with our guests about you. Um, uh, Justin was born in 1989. I think he's the youngest guest we've ever had on. Yes, indeed. Hugo might look a little younger, but he's definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Justin, you came to the United States when you were two years old, uh, was a latchkey kid, started down the wrong path as a teenager, uh, which culminated with a life sentence um, at the age of 16 years old, incarcerated, and ended up being sentenced to 82 years to life. Uh, however, I'm a very fortunate man. Um, I know that you would say by the grace of God that you were commuted by the governor after 14 years. 14 long years and um, and you're able to eventually be set free. And there's a lot of stories in the, in the middle of that. We'd like to touch on them today, but I just want to officially welcome you to the prison post. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For sure. So um, go ahead, Jason. Oh, with our round table question. I got yeah. a round table question. It's for all three, all three of us. We can all participate in this because I was reflecting the other day and, uh, the question for all three of us, I'll go first, is what were you doing this time last year? And this time last year? Yeah. Uh, I'll ahead. start. Uh, man, um, I was hanging out with the brothers, eating burritos. Uh, my birthday, so the brothers and Charlie Wing, they all cooked us uh, burritos and we fellowshiped. Uh, we went to the yard, night yard, and just hung out. And... Yeah. Yeah, they sent me some Christmas cards, but that was pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Yeah. This, this time last year yeah. for me, I was I was on the level two yard of CTF Soledad, and I was pretty stressed out. You know, it was I knew I was about to miss my oldest son's first Christmas and his first birthday, and I had just found out that my wife was uh, pregnant with our second son. So, you know, I was, you know, going through my own uh, emotional distress at the uh, upcoming holidays and and celebrations that I wouldn't be there for. Uh, So it feels like a lifetime ago. I mean, I've only been out uh, eight, almost nine months now. And uh, it just feels so long ago. But I can remember that last year, this time I was in a pretty, pretty low and dark place. Rich? I remember some of those phone calls, Jay. Uh, it was a <clears throat> it was a helpless feeling uh, to hear my brother who's, you know, there's your hands are tied and, you know, you want to come home to your kids. Mm. And, um, you know, last night, me and Jason, I got to go to his house together uh, with some of my family. And and we had dinner together and Jason has a nice Christmas tree with the train track running around it and both his kids and. And um, we had dinner and then we went driving around looking at Christmas lights and he was driving and I was driving. And these are the times in our 20 years and 40, 41 uh, years of prison combined that we only imagined. Mm-hmm. You remember walking the track in Soledad and um, just talking about these times. And now we're actually 
getting to live them. And it's, it's humbling. Um, I think that we're so focused on, on the present and the future that we don't stop and think sometimes about the, about the past and all those years in there. And I could tell you that last year, this time for me, I was spending my first Christmas with my mom and, and my sister and my, my stepdad and my nieces and nephews and, and my brother and his wife. And, um, I don't think that I fully got into the, the Christmas spirit yet. I mean, I was happy and I was blessed to be home, but I didn't reconnect myself e emotionally yet to, to, to Christmas. And that wasn't until this year. I mean, a lot of my early childhood stories about Christmas weren't, I don't really remember too many of them. And the ones I do, they weren't too favorable. Um, but this year I was able to, to tap into, to the meaning and, and, uh, and get connected and get festive and appreciate the lights and the sounds and, and the music and the people. And, you know, it's just like a second chance at Thanksgiving of, of being grateful. Mm. So, uh, I just re received a permission earlier, uh, to travel to my mom's for, for Christmas. I'm really nice. excited. To, I'm really excited to go there for the day, uh, this year with a, a new perspective. Now it's my second one and I'm coming to a place where I understand, um, uh, who I am out here. I missed all of my twenties and all of my thirties, uh, inside. And, you know, it's a lot different. Um, going to, um, spending your nights in a, a concrete, uh, cell, you know, and a lot of times this time of the year, we go to the yard expecting to call our family and it's the one time of the year, you know, that the phones are down and they're yeah. expecting that call and we, we want to call yeah. mm -hmm. and we can't call. And so, and then, like you said about the burritos, like people don't get it out here, you know, for 20 years, that was our highlight. You know, yeah. People might be like burritos. What's, what's the big deal with burritos? But like burritos is the best as it gets and prison food um, and sodas and some chips and getting around some, some people that you love and you know, that love you. So, and uh, it's, it's good to catch you around this time of the year, Justin, and not only around Christmas, but on your birthday. Yeah. That's a double whammy. Yeah, two <laughs> gifts in one. Yeah, two gifts for sure. I'm not, I'm not used to that. That's beautiful. Hey, I'm I'm November 30th, and people do that yeah. to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah so close. It's not that close. It's tw like 30, 26 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wrong. They did you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm grateful now, and but what I, what I want to say, Justin, is you're now our third guest. Um, I was I had the privilege of of doing a podcast with you while you were still in Soledad and you came out to the yard uh, time after time. And I think we recorded uh, 15, 15 minute phone calls and, and we were able to get those edited down and to tell your story. In fact, we <clears throat> launched those episodes two weeks ago on the prison post across social media for our guests who are listening. If you want to hear Justin's full life story, it's on our bonus episodes, the prison post bonus episodes, episodes five, six, and seven, it's on Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and any other uh, major pod podcasting platform. And um, so we were able to interview you, and now you're the third guest. Um, our first was uh, James Willock. Our first was Christopher Gooden. You know him, and you also know yeah. James Willock. We were able to have him inside the studio. We'd normally be in the studio right now because um, uh, of COVID and different conditions. We're, we're recording the podcast from our homes. And uh, so you're the you're the third one that we're able to now see free and be able to look at you without just hearing uh, hearing that uh, you're receiving a call from Global Telling. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was great to see you, brother. I love you. I miss you. Uh, I'm very proud of you. I know about some of the things that you're doing today. You know, we've talked on the, on the phone several times and in social media. Actually, your audio podcast ha- had more listeners than in, than any of our product podcasts across the board uh, for the audio only. And so you have a really emotionally moving and powerful story. The love that you have for your mother is uh, is unique. And, uh, and I think a lot of moms, my mom was listening to the episodes and she said she could only finish about one and a half because um, all those old memories were coming back for her and she was getting emotional yeah. and and she remembered what it's like. But I said, well, mom, he's free now. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I can't hear no more. So she's yeah. like one of our biggest fans. And so, um, so how, you know, how have you been, Justin? Um, I've been good. Um, definitely it, it beats prison just to be out. But I still have like the ice hold uh, hovering over me. So it's a different type of obstacle. Um, I'm still dealing with that. I have to periodically check in. Uh, currently, I have an ankle monitor on, so I have a lot of restrictions. So I'm dealing with that, and, and I've been out six months, and it definitely was stressful, uh, a lot of obstacles, but you know, putting things into perspective, um, I'm just going to enjoy the moment that I'm out here you know, with my family, with my friends, with church, and literally taking one day at a time still and literally enjoying every day as it comes and making the most of it. Now, do they, do they provide you with any type of services, reentry services or anything? No. No, so, I, I said vicious. They mm-hmm. pretty much just want you out of the country. Okay. Um, I have to stay home certain days to check in. Uh, I got to wait for a phone call. Um, I have to check in physically, periodically. And... Technically, I can't even work. I have to go through the whole, I have to go through the whole process of getting a, a work permit, which can take up to four to six months. Right. Um, and you have to pay about four or five hundred for a work permit each year. So it, it is vicious. So let me ask this: If you didn't have your family's incredible support, what would they essentially be doing with you, or what what would you be able to do? Nothing. I would. I was pretty much it's a sitting and waiting game. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people do wait inside ICE facilities and wait. Right. And sometimes they're better off because they provide you with, with housing and food and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fortunate to have that kind of support from my family. Mm-hmm. But other than that, there's essentially nothing you can do except to just wait on them. Justin, how were you able to would you explain the process and, and we'll go back to a little bit more of your story earlier and let's spend some time here with your with your current uh, immigration hold. How were you? What is the process there once you were released? Were you released immediately um, to 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 freedom or did you have to go to a holding center where you bailed out? You know what? Describe to a, describe for us and our audience, because I know that. <clears throat> um I'm on a on a board of um, commutations and and, and pardons um, with uh, um, various groups, and I know that we, me and you, have talked about one of them with the Asian Law Caucus, and and there are some people that have that opportunity to to get pardoned, uh, whether after being found suitable or being commuted, um, and having to go back to countries like maybe Vietnam or Cambodia, and they're pardoned and allowed to stay. So, first of all, what was the process, and then we'll talk about that after. 
Um, so I do want to kind of backtrack a little bit because um, I did get out through an appeal that I won in court. And it was last minute notice. When I got the, the letter in the mail, it said immediate release. And two days later, they processed me out. And as soon as I got released, um, ICE agents were waiting for me and they detained me and I was transferred to their facility in Stockton and then went to Bakersfield. And basically when you go to ICE, you're, you're pending deportation or you can choose to fight it. But because of the gravity of my case, um, they said that I don't even see a judge. Um, I have an administrative removal order and I'm pending deportation. So pretty much I was just waiting to see what was gonna happen. But the timing of everything, when I ended up in Mesa Verde, that's in uh, Bakersfield, they had a, a COVID outbreak. And uh, prior to me coming, one person had died. Uh, they didn't say why, but there was a, a big lawsuit going on. So because of that, uh, they were uh, uh, accepting uh, bail applications. And I was just in the, the right place at the right time because only two facilities were uh, accepting bail applications. And through talking to some people, um, I talked to some lawyers and everything just, just panned out perfectly. So I was able to submit my bail application. Um, and during that time, it was when the, the protests were going on. You guys remember with the George Floyd and, and the riots, it was crazy. And the bail application, I only had about till like three days till to uh, apply. And then the judge wasn't taking anything, but because of the protest, they extended it for several more days and that gave me time to apply. And then that just told me like, man, like everything's working out in my favor. And by faith, I just knew it was gonna get granted. So given that little short time of span and um, just by, for me, I believe it was the sovereignty of God allowing me to be at that place. And I was only in ICE for 10 days. And then the judge granted it and ordered me release on bond through ankle monitor. So I've been out six months pending deportation right now. And I know that it, it, I mean, it goes without saying that you prefer to stay in the United States. Is there anything that you can do to stay legally? Legally, there's so many complications with ICE because uh, you're dealing with the federal government. And even if I were to get a pardon, it doesn't guarantee my stay. Um, it might allow me to reopen up my case before an immigration judge. And, and then they could decide based on other merits or, or other grounds. Uh, it's definitely a long shot, but I've been here since I was two years old. This is all I know. This is my home. And, and I want to do everything I can to fight to stay with my family. I know that you started a, a letter, um, letters of support and uh, petitions, getting those together. And um, I know that I, I submitted one myself. And what about people people watching the show and who'd like to support you? And I think this is an area who, that hasn't really been touched uh, too much on on people having to go back and who really never knew that land. I mean, there's been, of course, conversations about it in politics, but um, what could uh, what could the petitions do, and what are your plans on who to submit them to? So. I think from talking with different lawyers and how to strategize uh, to collect letters from influential people in politics 
um, through Senate or assembly members or uh, just getting their support uh, for them to know what kind of person I am, that I'll be able to bring more value here than rather in Korea. Um, because I've been here all my life. I've been involved with gangs and prison. I know I can talk to people like me, people that look like me. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, advocates in the Hispanic or the black community, but not so much in, in my community, specifically the Korean community. And I know I could bring so much more value to that area of, of ministry or, or work. Um, but definitely I've been collecting support letters from different organizations like you guys, nonprofit or churches, or even different attorneys working with commutations and pardons. Um, but I've been doing my part to network and uh, see anybody that's willing to support me while I uh, petition to the governor. Wow. <clears throat> Justin, now, worst case scenario, worst case scenario, your efforts fail and you're sent back to South Korea. What are your thoughts and what are your plans in that circumstance? Uh, worst case scenario, um, I would have to enlist in the army. It's mandatory in South Korea, um, which is not a bad thing because I know there's a lot of opportunities and resources. But at this point in my life, I, I just want to get my life started. I don't want to go back to an institution and, and be governed by authority. Um, it's not a bad thing. I, I believe it'll teach me a lot more discipline and uh, definitely a lot more resources for sure, career-wise too. Um, but at this point in my life, I just want to just just be free. I want to sure do what I want to do. I want to enjoy life and not be subjected to any of those kind of things. Would there be would there be any option or opportunity if the worst case scenario played out for you to return to the States over a period of time? Could you, could you apply for citizenship or is that no longer an option because of the felony? Yeah, that's no longer an option because of the felony. Mm. Okay. What are your, what are some of your, when you think about it at night and, and I know you've come to a place of peace and, and you're not going to live your life with a, and enjoy the moment and the time you have with your family and uh, fight as hard as you can. But should you, should you, um, when you do have those types of thoughts, what are, what are some of your fears about going, going there? Um, I, I think my initial fear is because I've heard stories where ICE would just come pick you up uh, without even notice. Like, like today I could be enjoying my birthday and then all of a sudden ICE will come or they'll tell me to check in somewhere and detain me. So I have that fear sometimes, but, you know, I, I don't let those thoughts play in my head. Um, I know it might not even be logical, but I know it, it has happened to people. But at this point in my life is if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So I'm, I'm just going to enjoy this time I have with my family and, and make it the most of it. I want to bring so much impact to the people around me. Um, and, and leave a lasting impression the short amount of time that I do have. So that's how I've been living my life day to day, every day. Would you have family support there? I do have an aunt there. Um, she's been visiting me every year since I've been in prison. So I do have her support, but the rest of her family doesn't know I've been incarcerated because of the culture and the shame that comes along with it. Mm. So, so that's another thing is I, 
would you share a little bit with us as far as the perspective of incarceration in South Korea? Um, it's, it's still very shameful. Um, mm -hmm. Even tattoos, like today mm -hmm. in our culture, you know, tattoos are normalized, but in, in Korea is perceived as you're, you're a gang member or somebody very low. Um, so just the fact that I've been in a gang, I've been to prison, then I'm, I'm ostracized. Um, sure. Even here, I, I feel the, the tension with some of my family members here. Some of them want nothing to do with me because I've been to prison, I've been in a gang. And mm -hmm. some of them don't reach out at all, even, even through the holidays. You know, mm -hmm. But I have to remind myself that I do have other family that, that still love me and still care for me. Something I think is interesting you know, and, and not to diminish or downplay our personal responsibility, you know, for right. the choices that we make and the crimes that were committed and the harm that we caused. But I think it is interesting and instructive about the way our society is built. You know, if you if you go overseas, whether you're going to some countries in Africa or Europe, the society itself takes a large part of responsibility in creating a cultural context where criminal behavior is almost normalized or, or accepted. But here in, in the U.S., it's like, you know, if you commit a crime, then you, you got to be punished. It's not it's not a conversation of like, how did we create an, an atmosphere where this type of behavior was somehow seemed acceptable to people, right? Um, so just taking that into account, thinking about some of the ways, the things we watch on TV, the music that, that young people are exposed to, is it fair to say that in some ways, Justin, when you were young, growing up in the United States of America, that there was an influence of some sort that had some impact on your thinking about what, what it meant to be cool or what it meant to be tough? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, growing up in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, um, Tupac mm -hmm. was a big thing, Biggie, uh, Brother Lynch. And yeah, it was all about drinking, smoking, uh, straight sure. West Coasting. Um, sure. you know, West side, like that kind of hip hop culture. And it was cool. Everybody, even, you know, my friends, the, the girlfriends, everybody was into that. And for me, I took it to another level. You know, I, I really want to, you know, prove myself, but I realized in the end, like, you know, it's all a front. It's right. a facade. Let's go back there. And, and because some, some of our, some of our um, subscribers and listeners, they're, they're wondering, you know, here's, here's this guy. He looks like a pretty clean cut kid. He's, um, maybe he doesn't look like a, a gang member, whatever that looks like. But um, um, your parents came here for a better life. Um, you know, how did you initially start going down that path, Justin? Um, even as a youngster, uh, you know, we would do stuff like like go body shots, uh, meaning we'll we'll fight without without uh, gloves, just body blows only, no head shots. Um, and then the older kids, they'll they'll smoke cigarettes, they'll have alcohol, and we looked up to them, and they would they would go body blows too, and sometimes they would challenge me, hey, like little homie, let's go, let's 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 box, and just engaging in that that type of behavior, um, it felt good you know, that I would be able to step up to the older guys and all that stuff was condoned. And when I would stand my ground and, and they'll be like, man, good job, like you can handle your own. And then amongst my friends, I was, I was looked up to and I want to keep building that reputation and just seeing what the older guys did or, or how other gang members 
behave, uh, I, I follow that. Well, I think as a, as a follow-up to what Jason shared, um, what I'm asking is like, when did you first start getting attracted to that? Was it from that hip hop culture from listening to the music and, and then seeking that out? Like, um, you know, I could kind of remember for myself, um, 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 I, I started being rebellious in the sixth grade. I saw the eighth graders at the bus stop smoking weed. Uh, I didn't feel that acceptance, uh, affection and, and affirmation at home. My mom was recently married. I wanted to hate her husband. And um, so um, I said, well, I'm gonna go get it somewhere else. So I started, I I can distinctly remember, and maybe and maybe it's not the same for everybody, but I could distinctly remember, I, I'm gonna go down this path and I'm gonna go hang out with these guys and I'm gonna do what I wanna do and when I wanna do it. Yeah, it, for me, it started in junior high <clears throat> at church. So I so I met those group of friends uh, from different cities and, and they were already smoking cigarettes and they had learned it from other kids, but it looked so cool. They had the popularity, the girls were around them. So I wanted to be around them too. So when I started hanging out with them and then, you know, getting involved with cigarettes, alcohol, and then even to, you know, going boxing, um, I just wanted more. But I, I got attracted to that uh, at first when I started going to church. Mm. <laughs> Most people would think yeah. going to church, that's not where you find it yeah. at. <laughs> no, that's, that's, yeah. that'd be the opposite, right? <laughs> yeah. So it, it was a big church. It was a mega church. Right. Mm. So I just think that's interesting because I imagine in other cultures, whether it's that they are more cautious about like what mainstream media or entertainment they're allowing uh, the viewing public to watch or whatever. I don't, maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's just the case that when someone is young and they see them going down the wrong path, there's systems in place to help them correct course. Whereas for so many, it seems black, brown, and yellow communities, it's like, no, just let them do what they do because when they go to prison, uh, you know, it's a punishment model anyway. And we, and we can continue this, this machine of, of us getting paid off of a, you know, a perpetuation of slavery in some ways. So I don't know, that's kind of a bigger conversation. I'm just curious because, you know, for many returning citizens who, who have what we call American privilege, like we don't have the, a lot of the concerns and the issues that you're facing right now. There's a lot of services that are available to us, yeah. particularly for people who are looking for them, you know, whether we're talking about housing, counseling. Now then that doesn't mean they're integrated or that they're really great, but at least they're there. You yeah. know, there's, there's, there's places you can go to for some type of help. Um, but it doesn't sound like you're getting any of that. You're just literally in a holding pattern waiting for them to rip you out of your family's home and take you back to a country that you know very little, if nothing about. Yeah, so even when I got paroled, uh, nobody was notified, uh, none of my parole agents. So when I checked in with them, um, they were like, man, like we didn't get notice of you. We didn't get any paperwork. Um, I checked into my transitional home should I check in? Nobody knew I was gonna show up, um, but I did have a pro agent say, "Look, you're you're pending deportation, and you're gonna check in with ICE in a couple of weeks. Just stay at your mom for now, and and see what happens." So initially, I thought I was gonna get deported within weeks, and then when I did check in, they told me to come back in November, which is about three four months uh, later. And my pro officer arranged it in a way where I could stay with my mom for those several months. And then when I did check in in uh, November uh, last month, they told me to come back in May. So it's, it's just a waiting game. And um, yeah, I wasn't able to go to a transitional home and get those resources. But 
um, just be with my my family, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but sure. it's just the the feeling of unknown, being in a limbo. What's gonna happen? Um, so so I feel like I'm I'm literally just waiting and waiting and waiting. So I remember speaking about you know your family and kind of being in limbo. I remember that this is this isn't the first time. I mean, you had some disappointments with your commutation initially. Um, would you share a little bit, not only of the disappointment that you suffered, but kind of how your family took it and then kind of dovetail that into how they're taking this now, uh, the, the prospect of you being deported? Yeah, so I, I was granted commutation in 2018, right before Thanksgiving by Governor Brown. <clears throat> and then six months later, I went to the parole board. I was granted parole. And then four or five months later, uh, when Governor Newsom came into office, he reversed my parole. So <clears throat> during that time, it, it was very confusing. Um, I didn't understand why he reversed my parole at that time. Um, the commissioners, they commended me. They commended me on my growth, my maturity. They told me that I was a model inmate, that usually people that come in young, um, they get sucked into the gang, the politics, but somehow I was able to deviate from all that. But they commended me on all that. And when I got the governor's reversal, I remember it was September 11th, uh, 2019. And, you know, by that time, I'm, I'm ready to go home. I'm, I'm tired of prison. I'm tired of working at, at PIA, at sweatshop. I'm just tired. So when the counselor called me to sign my paperwork or, or give me some paperwork, I was thinking I'm going to sign in and go home. So when I got that news, um, it felt like I, I received the life sentence again. And I felt like a, a ton of bricks just hit me and, and I had to sit down. And I checked in with my work and I, I told my supervisors, I can't work, I'm, I can't work today. I gotta go, I gotta go back to the cell and just process everything. And I was just thinking about how I'm gonna break the news to my family. Um, at this time, you know, they're, they're all excited waiting for me to come home. Uh, my mom's going shopping, buying me shoes and socks at Costco. And I finally wait till the end of the day, very last phone call, which is 845 at night. And I, I finally call her and my mom's excited. She's like, should I buy you this? Should I buy you Adidas? And, or should I just wait for you to come home? And at that point, like I had no words to say. I, I couldn't even speak. I, I just broke down and just tears were coming out of my nose, my eyes, everywhere. And it was embarrassing, but I, I was devastated. And when I finally broke the news to my mom and, and she was worried, like, what does that mean? Does that mean you took away your commutation too? And I told her, no, um, I'm rescheduled to go back to the pro board in 18 months. And she was the one comforting me and strengthening me. You know, we did it once, we'll do it again. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard, but we'll, we'll go through it. And she said, I'm going to visit you that following week, uh, which is, that was a Wednesday when I got the news and she visited me that Saturday. She just didn't make an appointment and just drove five hours, make sure I was all right. And then the following weekend, my grandma and my aunt from Korea, they came, they visited me to make sure I was all right. And my pastor came the following week after that to make sure I was all right with his wife. Um, and, and I had a lot of support to get me through it and it definitely was devastating. And when I looked everything back in hindsight, it was a, a growing moment. It was a growing pain. Uh, it was a time of maturity, resilience, 
And even when I go through with this eye situation, I can't help but to think that God has something bigger for me, that God is going to use me on a bigger platform. So whenever I go through these setbacks and obstacles, I, I have to welcome it. This is where, where, where you grow and strength. So let's, let's go, let's bring it, you know? I mean, I can only imagine that, you know, the incredible support and love from your family is continuing during this difficult time. Uh, but what are some of the things they say to you or some of the things that they share with you about this, this possibility of, you know, you maybe being deported to another country? So my mom is already planning to move out there to Korea with me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I tell her, you don't have to do all that, you know, because if she does go to Korea, she wouldn't be able to work because um, I don't know if it's law in Korea, but after a certain age in Korea, uh, you're you're not allowed to work unless you're like a business owner or CEO. And my mom is already at that age, uh, in her late 50s. So I tell her um, just to save up much money as you can right now. Uh, you don't have to move out there with me, but eventually I'm pretty sure she is. So in the back of her mind, she's already planning for something like that. Now, is she, are you her only child? Yeah, I'm the only child. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm an only child too by my mom. So yeah, uh, I have some understanding of that amazing mm -hmm. love. Uh, yeah, that's definitely a common denominator here. The love of our moms and the empathy on no, my mom. She visited me like one, once every six, seven weeks. And for them to come and visit you in that way, you know, after that reversal, three weeks in a row, that shows a lot of empathy there, a lot of love. And even your mom, you know, uh, I'm sure she, she, of course she has her own life, but you're her life. And, uh, yeah. and that's, that's her, her, her choice to, to go and, and see her son the rest of her days. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing, man. Talk, talk about the support. You know, a lot of our, our listeners are mothers. Uh, we saw a mother of, of a, of a young man who's 27 years old and incarcerated right now with 10 years to go, uh, a few weekends ago. And, Talk about how the support of your mom helped you get through those those tough days or those 14 years uh, and what it meant to you. Man, it's, it's only because of our mothers that we are trying to do good. We are trying to make it home. And, you know, when, when you come into prison young, you're very susceptible to peer pressure or even when somebody uh, belittles you or, or degrades you. You know, I've been in a situation where people tested me and, and got in my face, but I just kept thinking about my mom. Like I started off in Pelican Bay and there was a situation that it got very confrontational, but all I kept thinking was my mom, I need to at least make it down to a, a lower level. I need to at least, you know, be closer down South. So, you know, my mom always kept me in check. She always wrote me. She always accepted my phone calls and always visited me. And in the beginning of my incarceration, um, you know, I was susceptible. I wanted to get tattoos and I wanted to be in that lifestyle too. But because of my mom's constant checking in, like I can't get no tattoos. She's going to yell at me. She's going to probably hit me. So all that <laughs> accountability, it, it kept me in check. And I wanted to at least make it down to a lower level. So if I'm going to just back down and walk away and be called a, a sissy or, or somebody a, like a coward, then I was willing to face that for my mother. Yeah. 
Justin, so when you when you when you found out about the reversal and and I remember on the on the prison on the calls what I called you from when you're still on the inside and you talked about how hard and you even you shared it right now how hard it was for you to have that conversation with your mom and I love her line you know if we did it once we'll do it again and and then you know you were you were prepared for that I remember you calling me uh, on the phone and 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 going through that dark night of the soul and being discouraged and wondering what is God doing in this? Like, why is this happening? Um, and, but eventually um, you filed an appeal and what, what happened after that? And how, when did she find out that you were going to be released or that you were released? So when I got the, the governor's reversal, uh, I immediately called my lawyer and told him what happened. And he was like, Justin, don't play. That's not even funny. But I was like, I wish I was. Uh, and I sent him the letter. So upon reading that letter, he, he was like, Justin, uh, the, the reasonings for this wasn't just, it wasn't constitutional. Um, we're gonna file an appeal. And at that moment, I, I told my lawyer, hold on, like, no, we're talking about the governor of California. Like, I don't wanna rub him the wrong way. If he wants me to go back to the parole board, I'll, I'll go back to the parole board. Um, but man, like each day was so painfully slow. And 18 months, I was like, man, 18 months. So after about a week or two, I, I called my lawyer back and said, you know what, let's, let's do this. This is just painful. Um, and my lawyer said, look, I've already drafted the motion. I've already talked to several lawyers and we have a strong case. And within a month, he had already filed. So the process went pretty quickly. And, and as it took about... Altogether, it took about seven, eight months. Um, I got the governor's reversal in, in September. And, you know, I was going through those conversations with Jason as well. Like, you know, my appeal is in motion. This is what I'm looking forward to. Um, the superior judge in LA uh, granted an order to show cause. Um, so it's looking good. And then in April, uh, that's when I got a letter from the judge saying that uh, he vacated uh, the governor's re reversal and reinstated the board's approval. And then shortly after that, it was granted immediate release. Um, but I, I do want to add that during that time period, um, the governor did have a chance to appeal the, the court's decision. And the governor chose not to. So that gave me a lot of hope. And then immediately after that, uh, I was released from CDC. Well, once you were actually the talk about the day that you were uh, actually got to hug your mom outside of the gates or walls or, or see family and go home. What was your experience? And I, I kind of want to backtrack to when I left uh, Saladad, um, because when I did get that immediate release, um, by that time I was transferred to a level one and I didn't have uh I wasn't be I wasn't able to talk to my friends uh, from a level two, but the day I went to R and R that morning, a lot of my friends showed up, including James Willock, and mm. I remember he just just hugged me like I love you, bro. I love you. I'm gonna see you out there soon, and that just it felt so good that all my brothers, all my friends, they were there to support me. There was like 15 of them in R and R, and it it felt oh. so surreal. And, and that was during the COVID situation. So I don't even know how they got out. 
Some of them <laughs> like snuck out or were in education. Uh, some of them worked in the medical. So, you know, but it was great to see them. And right. as soon as, as soon as I left CDC and went to ICE, I was like, man, at least I'm out of CDC. Like CDC mm. is vicious too. Mm-hmm. You know, I said a different story, but I felt like, you know, they weren't making up reasons to keep me in there. Um, but when I did get out of ICE, my my mom came with my lawyer and I wanted them to, to be there um, above everybody else. They, they were my biggest supporters. Mm. And yeah, it was surreal. My my mom just cried and she just kept looking at me and, and she couldn't believe that I was home. And and when I got in the car, I was like, am I really out? Like, did they really just let me out? And I kind of felt paranoid. Like, what if they just choose to lock me back up? But man, I, I was really free through all those battles. Something, something you just shared, Justin, kind of, uh, provoked some thought um, for me. I was thinking about the day I paroled because James Willock was there uh, for me as well. And, you know, he's free now and he's working his tail off and real soon he's going to be uh, working more regularly with us. But your story about the brothers kind of being there to say their farewells and show their love and their support for you, it's, it's instructive of why we do this work in the first place. Because those relationships, those transformations, they didn't happen like in a vacuum. They happened within a community, a community of people who were committed to changing their lives and adding value to one another in some way and adding value to the community. So um, it's just it's really a powerful thing when people start doing the right thing with their time and are supportive of one another. And, you know, I remember those conversations with you on the yard and I mean, the, the hundreds and hundreds of, of hours with Rich and, you know, those relationships are real. They're, they're part of what make us the people we are today. So I'm, I'm just privileged to know you and I'm, and I'm praying for you that this works out in, in a way that's, well, certainly. Uh, that's beneficial for the world and instructive in so many ways, um, because we can do it so much better and, and we're going to do it together. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I think that that a lot of people don't realize. I mean, maybe some people would think it is audacious <clears throat> to be sentenced to 82 years to life and then to file a, a commutation after how many years in? Uh, it was about 12. After about 12 years in. So yeah. I think uh, many of our listeners, they may have a loved one in who's been in 10 years or 12 years on a 25 to life or a 40 to life. And they're asking themselves, uh, well, maybe he ought to wait 20 years or maybe he ought to wait this amount of time. And, you know, there's a, one of our mentors, Jim Micheletti, you know him from Palma. Yeah. He says on a, on a daily basis, collect evidence of hope. Yeah. So what what got into you to say, I'm going to file a commutation after 12 years? And and <clears throat> what's that story right there? So initially, I didn't even know a commutation process even existed. Um, I've, I've heard of like a pardon process, but I only heard that you only do that as a last resort after all your appeals have been exhausted. Um, but I remember in 2017, uh, one of one of my, my buddies named Hugo, uh, he had been called to the governor's office and was interviewed and then eventually granted a, a commutation. And I was like, what? 
And, and when I heard that, I was like, man, like it really is possible. And, you know, I looked at him and I, I looked at myself and, you know, a lot of the criterias were, were similar. Um, aside from the crime, he came in as a youth. Um, I came in as a youth. He had 75 to life. I had 82 to life. Um, he'd been out of trouble all these years. So with the same thing, I was like, man, if, if he could get it, I know I'm able to get it. And he had a lot of political support, a lot of influence um, on his behalf. I didn't have nobody, but I, I trusted in my integrity. I trusted in what God's able to do. And for me, I, I prayed and prayed and prayed. And for me, God was my biggest advocate. So I, I ran it by my lawyer that I'm going to file a commutation. And he said, Justin, you can't do that right now. Your appeal's still going. We're in the federal uh, district court right now. And I told him, look, um, I'm going to file it. One of my friends were granted commutation, and I believe this is my way out. Wow. And he said, don't <laughs> don't file it yet. Let me let me talk to you. Let me come visit you. And then we could talk it over. And he came to visit me. And he told me, you can't file it because you're still appealing your case. And I told him that I'm going to forfeit my appeal. If it doesn't mm -hmm. go through, then that's the consequences that I'm going to live with. But that's the little window of hope that I saw and, and I took it. And I know for the past 12 years that I've been living a, a transformed life, that I haven't gotten no write-ups, I haven't gotten any trouble, got my GED, my college degrees. I've been everything and doing everything required of me. And I knew my integrity and that's what I stood on. And I just wanted a shot, an interview from the governor's office that to show them that who I am today, that I'm not defined by my past as a 16 year old, that I am a mature, uh, at that time I was 28, that I am a mature 28 year old and please hear me out. And I know I don't deserve a commutation, I, I don't, but please see me for who I am today. And I was given that opportunity and, and I maximized it. I, I maximized it at the parole board and I'm gonna continue to maximize my opportunity out here while I'm free. Thank you for sharing that, Justin. You know, I always say that, Justin, uh, you're a lot like uh, Richie Reseda. We had him on, very talented. I know uh, you're a pretty humble guy, so a lot of people don't know about, about you, the, the writing you do, the poetry you do. I've heard you rap, I've heard you sing, play the guitar. You're a leader in the praise and worship team, preach, preach and teach the Bible. Um, you can lead and you can follow and you have a lot of, a lot of value for this world. And, and that's, that's something I, I would like to begin closing this conversation on is, you know, uh, I, I hope that you can get an audience with the governor and, and be able to make your case and to share a little bit about the value that, that you bring to this world. Because, uh, for many years in there, probably half of the amount of time that you were in Jason and I, we got to see the type of man that you are, you know, you're one of the, like, along with James Willock, one of the most transformed yeah. people that I ever met. And I know that you went through uh, some of our workshops, <laughs> those five day, uh, seven, eight hour a day workshops. And you're in the front row and you're up there telling your story and, and it was rough. Um, but um, you did a lot of service in there with youth and in various groups facilitating. And you, like you said, you got your college degree and you invested the time. Uh, what do you always say about our investments, Jay? The investments we make in the present purchase our future. Yeah. So what type of investments are you making right now in your community, even while um, on an ankle monitor, even while um, 
not knowing whether ice will come day or night. What are you doing now? Um, and what would you say to the governor? Um, I'm currently volunteering at a nonprofit called Onesimus Ministry. They work with youth prevention, prison ministry, um, even reentry programs. Um, they're more geared towards the uh, Korean community. So I've been volunteering uh, twice a week. Uh, I love it. Um, that's the type of work I love doing, working with the people that are incarcerated, writing letters to them, cards, um, mailing. We have a, a Bible college program that we have students that attend from inside. I, I went through their Bible college, so I'm able to uh, receive it, grade it, record it, mail it back. Um, I'm continuing my, my social justice classes from Hartnell College. I'm a few credits away from graduating. I'm continuing my Tumi College, which is the Urban Ministry Institute. And I'll be graduating in two weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. And that's a bachelor uh, level program. Um, and I currently enrolled into LA Trade Tech to barber and cosmetology school. So I want to continue cutting hair out here. I was cutting Jason's hair inside. Yes, he was. Um, he cuts hair too, <laughs> as a bonus. So I want to utilize that, you know, as a as a vocation, as a profession. Um, even maybe in the future, teach youngsters how to cut hair and and hire them. You know, if I'm able to stay here. Um, I'm doing everything I can in my community, serving, um, being active in ministry and church, outreach. And yeah, as time allows me, um, I'm doing Zoom meetings, talking to different uh, law students. Uh, my lawyer, he asked me to speak to his students from USC or Loyola. I'm, I'm speaking to them about my pro experience with the appeals. Um, I'm speaking to other youngsters through Zoom meetings. Um, being on a panel. So wherever I can shed light on on the juvenile justice system or immigration or even the parole board, uh, I'm more than available to speak and, and talk about my story. And, and I do want to stay here. This is all I've known. I've been here since I was two years old. Uh, my mother is all I have. She is all that I have. And, you know, my father passed away several years ago. And we, we are just here to support each other. And yeah, that was a, a, a mistake that I made years ago as a teenager, but today I'm definitely a mature man that I could give so much back to my community. And I have a lot more insight today where I can help the youngsters. I can help the people around me. I can help my peers, uh, people who are older, you know, to inspire people that, yeah, like regardless of your circumstances, it's, it's a, a mindset, it's a perspective to have yeah, I'm going through this right now. We all have problems, but let's go through it together. You know, I, I like taking on that mindset. This is like war. Let's go. Let, let's get what we need to get. Let, let's do this together, right? This, this battle, I believe, is fought, you know, through prayer, through through worship, through community. So, you know, I'm asking, you know, the public for support and petitioning the governor for signatures or even for the governor to even... Um, to see my situation that I've been here all my life and my family is all I have right here and my life is all I've known right here. There's a verse in the Bible that says, I think it's Proverbs 21, one says the King's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He moves it wherever he wishes. And, Amen. and we don't have a King, but there's a governor here. And uh, like Jason said, we'll be praying for you. Um, thank you for, coming on the prison post today. Um, 
you definitely uh, finished well. Didn't really like that first basketball comment. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but Justin, we love you, brother. They, they say and the truth hurts sometimes, Rich. Yeah, the truth hurts. <laughs> truth hurts. I'm old. Yeah. Overweight. Uh, we love you. And um, yeah, love you too. Tell your mom hi for us and celebrate your birthday today as yes, a free sir. man. Yes, and, thank um, you. You know, Romans eight twenty eight comes to mind as as well for you. You know, um, you know that you know what it says, um, Justin. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Birthday, Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday, Merry Christmas, and thank you for again. All right, thank you, Justin. Thank All you right. for coming on the show uh, and sharing your story so generously. We hope um, you get an audience with him and are able to stay, my bro. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.